0: It's really a great pleasure to welcome everyone to the third of this year's President's Lectures. For those of you uh, who are regular attendees of these lectures or who have been lecturers himself, (laughs) uh, Dennis Vini from the Department of Classics is here and has given one of these lectures in the past. Um, These lectures were really created 10 years ago when I first became President and realized that we are a campus where we, on literally any given day of the year, you can hear distinguished scholars from all over the world speaking about their work. But all too often, we never have an opportunity to hear our own colleagues speak about what they are doing. And that struck me at the time, and it continues to strike me uh, as a great shame, uh, given the quality of our faculty, and so this was the genesis of this lecture series, and I'm glad to see uh, so many of you here today. Um, today's uh, lecture is a special pleasure for me because Ginger Zakian and I have been friends for a very long period of time. In fact, if I give myself credit for anything I have done at Princeton, uh, at, at very close to the top of the list is going to be recruiting Ginger Zakian to Princeton. So this is a a, a wonderful opportunity uh, for those of you who have not heard Ginger talk about her path-breaking work to have an opportunity to hear what she has done in helping us understand the behavior of chromosomes. I've asked uh, her chair and friend, Lynn Enquist, uh, to introduce her formally. Lynn.
1: Okay. Don't say anything bad.
2: Let me extend my welcome too. It's really great to see you here, and it's an honor to introduce my friend and colleague, Virginia Zakian, to uh, today's presidential lecture. I know her as Ginger, so I'll just continue to do that. She's the Harry C. Weiss Professor of Life Sciences at Princeton University. She graduated from Upper Darby High School and received the A.B. in 1970 from Cornell, uh, and the Ph.D. in 1975 from Yale. She then came to this department as a postdoc with Arnie Levine. Her ginger's interests have always centered on DNA replication from her PhD work with Joe Gall at Yale on Drosophila DNA replication, her postdoc work on the biochemistry of DNA viruses here at Princeton with Arnie Levine, and to her second postdoc with Walter Fangman at the University of Washington on the genetics of yeast replication. She started her own lab at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in 1979, where she developed an exceptional laboratory. Uh, I got a few uh, uh, emails from her students who wrote that she was intellectually critical, highly enthusiastic, supportive, and patient. Here she learned how to provide an environment and opportunities conducive for doing the novel research and exciting science that you're gonna hear today. I'm also told that the lab food orgies were uh, uh, (laughs) legendary. uh, Maida Heater's chocolate cookbook was considered an essential reference tool, (laughs) as is the Maniana's manual for cloning. Uh, She stayed at the Hutch for 16 years, and then she moved back to Princeton in 1995. And again, thanks to Shirley for uh, uh, recruiting her, where she's now a professor in, in our department. Her research uses diverse genetics, biochemical, and cell biology approaches to understand the behavior of chromosomes. Most of their experiments in Ginger's lab are done with Baker's yeast, although other model organisms, ciliated protozoa, fission yeast, mammalian cultured cells are also used. And as you will hear, her research really is centering on uh, uh, telomeres, the structures that are at the ends of chromosomes. And she's uh, particularly well known for this pathbreaking work that she's done here. She's active in many professional societies, has a long list of professional accomplishments, keynote lectures, and awards. She's been an active member of the American Society for Cell Biology, and she's taken a lead in promoting women's issues in science. From my perspective as a department chair, she is a leader in our department, not only as a world-class scientist, but also as a caring mentor uh, for our students and for our new faculty, and as an exceptional colleague. So I'm really looking forward to hearing the lecture, Ginger, on ma- maintaining the end, the telomere replication and connections to human health.
1: Well, thank you both very much. I hope my talk can uh, hold up to those wonderful introductions. So um, what I'm going to try to do today is to tell you about about half of the work from my lab, which concerns the ends of chromosomes or telomeres. And what I'm gonna to try to do is to show you especially how research in model organisms, very basic research can lead to a profound impact on human health and often in unanticipated um, ways. So I consider the research that I'm gonna tell you about and a lot of this is work from the field, not from my lab, uh, is a triumph for basic science and how it can uh, impact our view of the human condition. Okay, and probably the, um, now, if you can't hear me, I'll move behind the thing, but I can't see my slides, and I think you can probably all hear me. So the evidence that my field has really made it is that in 2009, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was given to three people. Liz Blackburn who, oops, sorry. Who's often called the queen of telomeres. And you, I hope we'll be able to tell why by the end of the talk. Jack Shostak and Carol Greider for their seminal work in the discovery and characterization of an activity called telomerase. Here's a picture of human chromosomes, just as the cell is about to divide, and in light blue, you can see, um, sorry, the ends of the chromosomes are telomeres, and there's, because chromosomes are linear molecules in higher cells, there's two ends or two telomeres on every chromosome. So every time a cell divides, it has to duplicate its chromosomes, and that means it has to duplicate its telomeres, And it has to distribute its chromosomes properly to the two progeny cells prior to cell division. And this is a very complicated process, but it has to occur with incredible fidelity because the consequence of failing to do so has dire consequences for the viability of the cell and the organism in which the cell resides. In an organism like yeast, which is the organism that we work on, you can actually monitor how faithful this process is. And it's been shown that the error rate is only about one in every 100,000 divisions. So this is an incredibly faithful um, event. And when you think that in the human body we have more than a trillion cells, you can um, grasp that, the magnitude of that by thinking of the US debt. <laughs> and since we all start from a single cell, the fusion of the egg and the sperm, to get to a trillion cells, there have to be a lot of cell divisions. So this process is um, extremely important, and it's carried. a lot of the cell invests a huge amount of energy into making sure that it's carried out faithfully. And I'm going to focus on how you replicate just the very end of the chromosome, the telomere. Now, this is a space-filling model of the structure of DNA, which was determined by Watson and Crick in 1953 and for which they earned the Nobel Prize. And as I'm sure you all know, chromosomes are made of DNA and protein. But DNA is the crucial material. It has the information that tells our cells how to do what they do and which makes our children look like their parents. This is a cartoon of a DNA molecule a little easier to understand than the space filling model and i show it here to emphasize that the DNA molecule is actually a double helix and what does it mean to be a double helix it means that there's two strands in the, each molecule of DNA and these two strands are antiparallel that's the word we use to describe their organization relative to each other And what we mean by that is that one strand runs 5 prime to 3 prime from left to right. And the other strand, whoops, (laughs) runs 3 prime to 5 prime from left to right. And if I, uh, you can see what a PhD doesn't give you, which is the ability to use a pointer. (laughs) So. One way of thinking about this, so what, what does five prime and three prime mean? It's actually referring to the chemical composition of DNA. And instead of trying to explain what that really means, think of the two strands of DNA as two lanes in a highway. And one lane is going west to east, and the other one is going east to west, but they're right alongside each other. Now, this um, slide is to emphasize a bit about the process of DNA replication. We're gonna go into more detail on it uh, later in the talk. But as the uh, DNA molecule gets replicated, it serves, one strand serves as a template for making the other strand. This was the really amazing thing that became immediately evident when people saw the Watson and Crick structure for DNA because it was clear that the structure told you how information was passed on. The um, strand over here is the parent strand. This is the new strand that's being made in a given round of replication. And there are four bases in DNA. You can just think of them as um, (laughs) green is guanine and red is cytosine, yellow is um, adenine and blue is, uh, sorry, blue is adenine. And green always goes with red, yellow always goes with blue. And you can see that from this part of the molecule. So when you get to here and you're making a copy of this, the cell knows that you put a G opposite this molecule. You put a C opposite this one. So the new strand is not identical to the parent strand. It's complementary. It's a mirror image, if you will. Okay, now I wanna start on the history of telomeres. And this begins with a man named Herman Muller who worked with the model organism fruit flies. And he actually won a Nobel Prize, not for his work on telomeres, but for his uh, work showing that x-rays, that he could irradiate fruit flies, and this would generate mutations in chromosomal rearrangements. And I wanna emphasize that this work was done in the 1930s. Remember the structure of DNA wasn't determined until 1953. And in fact, at this time, nobody knows what the chemical composition of DNA is these, the intellectual insights in this work are really quite profound. Okay, so he um, w- would irradiate flies, and you get all kinds of rearrangements and mutations. But he realized that there was uh, one kind, and X-rays induce breaks in chromosomes. And then he would look at the chromosomes that he recovered, and he realized that he never recovered what he called a terminal deletion, which is a chromosome that's missing one of its ends he also never recovered a chromosome where this end is internal in the chromosome, not at the very end. And from these data, he reasoned that the end of the chromosome is not just a point in space, but it must be a structure. And further, he suggested that the structure must be essential, and the reason it must be essential is because you never recover a chromosome that lacks it. And finally, he said that in order, and he called the structure the telomere, he's the person who coined the word, And he said that it could only carry out this function if it were at the very end of the chromosome because you never recovered a functional chromosome with the telomere in in the interior part of the chromosome. So why are telomeres essential? The next step in the story is carried out by Barbara McClintock, working at about the same time as Muller. McClintock also received a Nobel Prize, but again, not for her work on telomeres. She was um, actually at Cornell studying chromosome behavior in corn and she was breaking chromosomes, not with x-rays, but through a natural process that occurred because of the unusual structure of the particular chromosome that she looked at. And so she got these breaks and she very carefully followed the fate of the broken ends. And what she saw was that broken ends would often fuse with each other. So she'd get those kind of structures. But telomeres did not fuse with other breaks, and they didn't fuse with each other. And since fusion of telomeres would create a very unstable chromosome, she reasoned that telomeres, what at least one essential function of telomeres were to protect chromosome ends from fusions, from end-to-end fusions. And in fact, in, uh, with much more recent studies, here's, this is a picture of a, a dividing nucleus from a cancer cell early in the genesis of cancer and um the, the two black uh, shapes are indicating the two dividing nuclei. It's a single nucleus dividing into two parts. And what you can see is that the chromosomes are still attached in the middle. And they're attached because you're having telomere telomere fusions. It's a very early, this kind of genome instability is a very early event in many tumors. You can see the um, loss of this protection against end to end fusions, even more dramatically in a situation that experimentally was set up by Tizia DeLong at Rockefeller University, where she actually, these are human chromosomes now, and she took away a protein from the end that's important for telomere function. And as a result of that, she gets end to end fusions. And you can look at this at a um, lower magnification and see that you can have long trails of these chromosomes attached together. So it'd be impossible to separate these chromosomes properly into the two daughter cells. So the molecular history of telomeres begins when Liz Blackburn, remember she's the queen of telomeres, joined Joe Gall's lab at Yale University. And as I think uh, Lynn mentioned, I was actually a graduate student in Joe's lab at the time that uh, Liz joined the lab. Liz grew up in Tasmania, off the coast of Australia. She She had just gotten her PhD from Cambridge in England, and she got it with Sanger, who won the second of his Nobel Prizes for figuring out methods for sequencing DNA. And Liz, when she did her PhD work, she used DNA sequencing. So when she came to Joe's lab, she was one of the few people in the world who knew how to sequence DNA. But Liz was a chemist. And Liz, therefore, knew very little biology. So she came to Joe's lab and she said, I wanna sequence something important. And so he said, well, why don't you sequence the ends of chromosomes? And specifically, why don't you sequence the ends from this beautiful organism, tetrahymna? Now, Tetrahymena is a single-celled organism. It's called a ciliated protozoan because these little hairs or cilia are found all over its surface. And ciliates, not just tetrahymena, but as you'll hear other ciliates, are a gold mine for telomere biologists. And the reason this is so is because they have very unusual biology of their nuclei. So they have two kinds of nuclei, a micronucleus, which as the name implies, so is a small nucleus, and then a macronucleus, which is a big nucleus, and which is made from the micronucleus. Now the micronucleus is just a regular nucleus. It has normal chromosomes, but, the macronucleus is generated from the micronucleus by chopping up the micronuclear, regular huge DNA molecules that make up the chromosomes in the micronucleus into small pieces. And that means that the macronucleus has lots of pieces of DNA instead of just a small number of chromosomes like most organisms. And each of those pieces has two ends. And so potentially it has, each end has a telomere. This is a picture um, of Joe, at the 2009 Nobel ceremony, he went there as a guest of Liz's, as a demonstration of his really important insight that ciliates were a great place to start if you were gonna try to do molecular biology of telomeres. Okay, so here's the paper that they published to show the sequence of the ends of these DNA molecules. And what they found was that there was what appeared at the time to be a somewhat boring sequence. It was just a repeat of six bases. C4A2 is the repeat unit, and it was repeated up to 40 times at a given end of the chromosome. So it's just C4A2, C4A2, C4A2. It doesn't code for anything, so it must be supplying a structure. Now, to emphasize the insights from Gall that made this so important, you have to realize that this work was done before, now DNA is now known, of course, but cloning had not yet become available. So the only way you could look at DNA termini was in an organism that had a lot of termini, such as a ciliated protozoan. Okay, now the next big advance came from looking at another ciliated protozoan. This one is called Oxytricha, And if tetrahymena rearranges its genome, Oxytricha is like the queen of rearranged genomes because it breaks its DNA not into just pieces but into really little pieces, so that they only are a couple thousand base pairs in size. Each piece of DNA, each piece contains a single gene, and the result of this is that there are literally—this is not an exaggeration—ten million telomeres in every macronucleus in this organism, and. So this was the second telomere to be sequenced, and it was sequenced in David Prescott's lab at the University of um, Colorado. And this is the world's smallest telomere, the smallest known telomere. And this is the sequence at the end. So everybody remember the Tetrahymena sequence, C4A2. This sequence is C4A4. Not the same sequence, but pretty close. And the thing that was realized from their work was that the G strand of the telomere, the complementary strand, was actually 16 bases longer than the C strand. This was the first demonstration that there are what are so-called G tails at chromosome ends. And these G tails are just as essential as the duplex DNA to supply telomere function. So for example, that protection function that McClintock discovered preventing end-to-end fusions, that function cannot be carried out unless you have a G tail at the chromosome end. Okay, so now, ciliates are really useful for studying telomeres, but they have the disadvantage. Their advantage is also their disadvantage. So they have lots of telomeres, but there's nothing normal about these chromosomes. And so many people, uh, and there was, although there was a theme developing from looking at these ends of these simple CA-rich re- repeats on one strand, GT on the other, the concern was that this might just be some weird thing having to do with ciliates. So the question was, what would chromosome ends look like in an organism with normal chromosomes? And for this, the field turned to another single celled organism, baker's yeast or budding yeast, same yeast that you use to make bread. So if you want to look at its telomeres, I can tell you how to do that. Um, And although it's also a single celled organism, it's very distantly evolutionarily related to ciliates and it has normal chromosomes. In fact, now that we know what its ends look like and human telomeres look like, they look pretty much the same. Okay, but here's the problem. Unlike ciliates, a yeast cell has only 32 telomeres in its nucleus, so it's gonna be really hard to find those in the huge um, excess of other kinds of DNA sequences. So this was the experiment that was done, and this experiment was actually first done by Shostak and Blackburn, and at almost the same time in my lab, first with tetrahymena ends and then with the Oxytricha ends. So the experiment was to take a piece of yeast DNA and in a test tube to take isolated telomeres from tetrahymena and just put them on the ends of that DNA um, molecule in a test tube. And then this was introduced into yeast. Now normally when you introduce a piece of DNA into yeast, it cannot be maintained as a linear molecule. It goes into a circle, or it goes into one of the existing chromosomes, but it can't be maintained as a linear molecule. And those of us thinking about that inability reason that it couldn't be maintained as a linear molecule because it didn't have telomeres. And really this was a kind of harebrained experiment because Uh, to put these ciliate termini on the ends. But the idea was, let's put these on the end and see if you could get a linear chromosome. And of course, I wouldn't be telling you about it if it didn't work. It worked, but it didn't work exactly how we all thought it did. The ends were actually longer than the ends that were put in. And when those ends were sequenced, it was realized that they didn't have the C4A2 sequence. They had a different sequence, related but different, and that was the sequence that's found at the end of yeast chromosomes. Okay, so now if we look at telomeric DNA from a variety of organisms, this is just a summary of a small number of the many organisms whose telomere DNA has been sequenced. We already talked about tetrahymena, the ciliate, C4A2, first to be sequenced, Oxytricha C4A4, and then the yeast sequence, which is not a, precise repeat, but you can see that it kind of fits into the same pattern that you saw with the ciliates. And then here's the sequence that's found on the ends of all vertebrate telomeres. Again, in the same flavor of the other sequences, but not exactly the same. Uh, In case we get to, um, I don't know, uh, uh, thinking that this sequence is just the greatest sequence since all vertebrates have it, I'd like to point out that slime molds also have the same telomere sequence. In fact, the available data now suggests that this is probably the primordial telomere sequence and the other ones um, evolved from it long before uh, humans separated from these other life forms. Okay, now, so here's an important thing you can get from this information. You don't, there are a variety of different sequences that can supply telomere function, but it's not like any sequence can supply. You can see that these sequences are all related to each other. Another thing that's really different about telomere function when you look from organism to organism is some organisms get by with only 20 base pairs of telomeric DNA. That's *Oxytricha*, for example, but mass chromosomes have 40,000 base pairs of this repeat at their chromosome ends. OK, now I want to get back to DNA replication. And I'm really hoping you're going to understand this slide. Because um, I want to try to explain why it's a problem, to rep- how, why replicating the very ends of a linear DNA molecule is hard to do. So first of all, the enzymes that replicate chromosome ends which are called DNA polymerases, were discovered in the 1950s. And in fact, Arthur Kornberg, who discovered the first one, also won a Nobel Prize. Um, And when people started looking at the the activities of these enzymes, it became clear, actually it didn't come clear to many people, but it became clear to Watson of Watson and Crick that these enzymes were fine for most of the DNA, but they were gonna be a real problem when it came to replicating the end of the chromosome. So why is this a problem? Why can't DNA polymerases replicate the very end of the chromosome? Well, the explanation starts with the fact that DNA is anti-parallel. I already told you that. Remember, one strand is running five prime to three prime, and the strand that it's base paired to is running three prime to five prime. DNA replication moves one way on the chromosome. And what I'm showing you here, it's moving left to right. Or you can think of west to east. And that's um, true for the whole molecule here. But it turns out the limitations of the biochemistry of DNA polymerases is that they can make DNA only in the five prime to three prime direction. So if you take this new strand, five prime to three prime, it's fine. It's going in the same direction as the replication fork. That is replication of this strand is in the same direction of replication of the whole molecule. But the other strand, five prime to three prime, is going in the reverse direction. And so there's a problem for replicating this strand. This strand is the so-called lagging strand and it's made in pieces. Those pieces are called Okazaki fragments, named after the scientist in Japan who discovered them and very sadly died at an early age. He was a teenager in Nagasaki when The U.S. dropped bombs on uh, Japan, the atomic bomb. And he was in the uh, initial cleanup campaigns as a teenager and died of leukemia in his early 40s. But anyway, so the lagging strand is made in pieces called Okazaki fragments. And so that blue arrow indicates the next piece and the direction in which it's made. So you could think about this as the two highways, this one going west to east, this one going east to west, and yet replication of both of those strands is going west to east, so it's a problem. Additionally, DNA polymerases have another problem. They can't start DNA replication by themselves. They need help, and the help is by putting some RNA to start the um, piece of DNA synthesis. And this segment of RNA its very little. It's only eight to 12 bases. bases—is called an RNA primer. And it starts each of those Okazaki fragments. So in our chromosomes, about every 150 base pairs, you're gonna have one of these Okazaki fragments with RNA at the end. Now RNA, there's a reason the genetic information is almost always DNA and rarely RNA. And it's because RNA is much less stable than DNA. when you're done replication, you have to get rid of that RNA. You can't leave it in the chromosome. It would cause genome instability. So now that you all understand that, this is the end replication problem as first articulated by Watson. So one strand indicated here in blue actually doesn't have a problem. That's the so-called leading strand it can go right to the end of the molecule continuously, no problem, and that's in fact what it does. It goes literally right to the end of the molecule. But the lagging strand starts with a little RNA primer, and when you get to the very end of the molecule, the terminal, and you remove that terminal RNA primer, you're gonna have a gap at the five prime end of the newly replicated strand. That is that five prime, that strand that ends with that five prime that's indicated by the fine prime is not complete. It's missing genetic information. And a regular DNA polymerase cannot fix that. It can't fill it in. So unless you have a special mechanism for replicating the ends of a linear chromosome, you're actually gonna lose genetic information every time the cell divides. So we have to have a special mechanism for that. Now to think about this mechanism and Uh, just to give you some of the conceptual excitement of the discovery of the mechanism for telomeres, I want you to think about what normally happens during DNA replication. You have a parent DNA molecule, and each strand serves as the template for making a new strand. So the new strand is always copied from the parent strand. And as a result, they're the exact same length. They're complementary, they're not identical, but they are the same length. Sort of one of the hallmarks of DNA replication. So it became clear, once we had a molecular handle in telomeres, it became clear that telomeres didn't seem to fit this paradigm that I just described to you. First of all, if you looked at the same telomere, in one cell versus another, you would see that they weren't exactly the same length. So it might be 100 base pairs shorter in this cell, 100 base pairs longer in that cell. Not very different, but not exactly the same length as the parent molecule. I already showed you this classic experiment from when you put ciliate telomeres into yeast. The yeast cell recognized them as being special, being an end type structure, but it added its own sequence to those ends. And since that sequence was different from the end that was, it was added to, it couldn't be templated by the existing DNA. It had to be templated by something other than the parent DNA molecule. Amazingly, everybody thought, oh, telomeres are gonna get shorter every time the cell divides, but When some telomeres were looked at, they actually got longer every time the cell divides. That was first seen in trypanosomes. It's, again, another model single-celled organism that causes African sleeping sickness. And its telomeres get longer every time the cell divides. So it couldn't be templated by the existing DNA molecule. So there has to be a different way to template telomeric DNA. It can't be the parent DNA molecule. So all these ideas were simmering in the field And people started thinking, well, what could be making telomeric DNA in the absence of a DNA template? And Liz Blackburn, working um, now at Berkeley, where she was a faculty member, and her graduate student, Carol Greider, said, we're going to go after this enzyme. And very wisely, they returned to Liz's old friend, Tetrahymena, because they figured this activity is probably gonna be hard to find, so we should look at it in an organism that's gonna have a lot of this activity. So they looked in Tetrahymena at the time when you're making those new macronuclei. And the activity that they discovered is called telomerase. Okay, and so here's their first paper, here's some data from their paper, but let me just summarize what they found. They showed that if they would prepare an, preparation it wasn't pure but it was partially pure of an enzyme of an activity that they later called telomerase and they showed that it could add T2G4 repeats onto T2G4 DNA it could also lengthen a a, a telomeric DNA that represented yeast telomeric DNA or human telomeric DNA but it couldn't lengthen, for example, the C strand of telomeric DNA or just non-specific DNA. And they, again, it's clear it's not templated by the substrate that they're giving it because it's putting tetrahymena telomeres onto, for example, a yeast telomeric substrate. And in their next paper that they um, publish, they showed that this activity has an essential RNA component And it's, in fact, this RNA component that's the template for making telomeric DNA. So this is a cartoon for what actually happens at the end of, you know, summarizing a huge amount of work here. Remember I told you that at the end of DNA replication, let me go back here, you have a short g-tail when you remove that terminal RNA primer. Telomerase comes, and it has an RNA component, Telomerase RNA that has a short stretch within it that is complementary to the G strand, so it can actually base pair with that single-stranded G tail, and then it uses the rest of that complementary region as the template for extending the G tail. These in green, these green blobs are the the protein subunits of telomerase. So the RNA can't do it by itself; it needs other subunits. But the critical thing here is that the RNA is the template. And that's why you can make telomeric DNA in the absence of a DNA template. It's not templated by DNA, it's templated by RNA. When telomerase finishes extending the G strand, it comes off the telomere, and then conventional RNA prime replication can fill in the C strand. And when you remove that terminal RNA, you regenerate a short G tail which is good because I've told you details are essential for telomere function. Telomerase is not quite the only activity for maintaining chromosome ends, but the vast majority of organisms, including yeast, which is the really important one, and also humans use this activity. Uh, surprisingly, Drosophila does not, which is kind of funny given that it was the first organism where, telom- where telomeres were discovered. So, we can now uh, use a di- make a diagram of how telomeres are, are replicating when you, um, and I wanna do this to emphasize one of the really surprising features when you stop and think about this solution to end replication. Remember it's the five prime end that's incompletely replicated. But what telomerase does is lengthen the three prime end. So it's lengthening the strand that actually doesn't have a problem rather than the strand that has the problem. And this is all due to the biochemical properties of both the DNA molecule and the enzymes that work on them. Now, um, all this work that I've summarized for you was done on model organisms. Some people might have thought it was kind of esoteric and, you know, who really cares about ciliates and yeast and everything. But telomerase was discovered in human cells. And it soon the uh, attention to this field uh, really Uh, increased exponentially with the discovery that there was a link between telomerase expression and human health. So it turns out that in most of the cells in our bodies telomerase is not expressed. And as a result of that every time our cells divide our telomeres get a little shorter. As you sit here listening to me (laughs) your telomeres are getting shorter. In contrast tumor cells and stem cells express telomerase. Their telomeres aren't usually really huge but they stop getting shorter. And one of the most interesting thing in human genetics in the last five years or so is the realization that there are mutations in humans that are known to cause diseases that result in early death of the person with the disease due to stem cell failure. And it's now appreciated that many of these Um, diseases are due to mutations in telomerase. And these people are not lacking telomerase altogether. They actually have more than 50% of the normal level of telomerase. And yet that level is not sufficient for a normal lifespan. So telomerase is an extremely low abundance activity. And any decrease in that amount can be disastrous for human beings. So the regulation of telomerase is a really important and interesting question. So as I said, a number of human diseases have been associated with telomerase. One is a stem cell failure disease called dyskeratosis congenita. Another is certain aplastic anemias when you stop, uh, you're, stop producing uh, blood cells, something called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is your um, lungs fill up with uh, kind of a nonspecific and useless cell type. And the reason is, is because the stem cells have stopped producing the right cells. And there's also links to things like heart failure and cirrhosis, not, um, these would be situations where maybe an environmental insult such as uh, too much alcohol can impact the ability to maintain telomeres. And it turns out short telomeres are predictive of age. So um, sadly, those students here in the audience have much shorter telomeres. And Shirley and I do, for example, although I think our telomeres are probably a lot wiser than yours, but anyway. They're also predictive of cardiovascular disease, infection, dementia, and one of the things Liz Blackburn has been focusing on lately is uh, shorter telomeres in women that are subjected to chronic stress, for example, caring for a very sick child. And this has led to a flurry of things in the, um, pseudo-scientific literature i just took this one at random off the web this is an advertisement for renew and one of the things i find really funny about this is that the tragedy that occurs on everyone's 25th birthday i don't know where they got this idea that it happens when you're 25 years old and this was even talked to about on the oprah winfrey show and um for 250 dollars you can get this little bottle and you drink it down and you only need it twice a year this is as they advertise, is much cheaper than other sources of telomerase. You can get telomerase skins if you want your skin to look better. There's a lot of sources out there of telomerase. But there are also some really exciting practical things. So I've told you that uh, tumor cells, most tumor cells, most human tumors express telomerase. It's estimated that 90% of human tumors, and that's regardless of type, whether it's breast cancer or lung cancer or liver cancer, 90% of the tumors are gonna express um, telomerase. And therefore, the, poten- the possibility that an anti-telomerase strategy could be a universal anti-cancer strategy uh, is in the process of undergoing clinical trials in multiple different ways. For example, at University of Pennsylvania, There's a guy, Bob Vonderheide, who is um, conducting clinical trials on stage four breast cancer using an anti-telomerase vaccine. And he comes in and teaches in Jim Broach's cancer course uh, and talks about that. So uh, maybe this isn't quite as good as having really nice looking skin, but uh, you can imagine that it's very exciting. Now, it's interesting to think about the dilemma uh, with telomerase and telomeres and cancer, because you may recall I showed you a slide where telomeres were fusing with each other, and I said that was an early stage of cancer. So, telomerase actually has both positive and negative roles in tumorigenesis. So, telomeres shorten as we age, and that results in genetic instability because as the telomeres get shorter there's a certain probability that they're going to lose their protective functions and that's going to result in genome instability and it's genome instability that provides the fodder for making a tumor once a tumor is established in, in the vast majority of them, about 90%, telomerase is activated and now telomerase has a positive role in tumorigenesis by um helping those tumor cells to continue to d- divide without limits okay um now here's an example this is from actually work from carol Greider's lab one of the nobel prize winners we're looking here at mouse chromosomes where we've actually inter- engin- where they have engineered a mouse that completely lacks telomerase in this case by getting rid of telomerase rna and here we're looking at chromosomes from f- a wild type mouse in red are the telomeres And here's um, chromosomes from a mouse after two generations, mouse generations, not cell divisions, without telomerase. And you start to see what are called signal-free ends. So you can't detect telomeric DNA on them. And in some cases, you're seeing um, there's another signal-free end. And there's a case where you're getting a circular chromosome from end-to-end fusion. And these abnormalities increase this um, particular Part of the slide is from a sixth generation telomerase, minus mouth, and now, you know, the chromosomes are really in trouble. So this gets me back to the poster that advertises this talk. And just in case any of you were wondering what shoelaces have to do with telomeres. Um, so this is uh, one of the very many pictures that were taken to make that poster. And this little plastic cap at the end of the shoelace is called an aglet. For those of you who like to do crossword puzzles, remember this word. So all of us know that when you um, lose that cap, the end of your shoelaces fray. And if your shoelaces had genetic information, as they continued to get shorter, you'd start to lose this genetic information. And this analogy between telomere, so the telomere, of course, is the aglet, the plastic cap. This analogy was first made in Newsweek magazine. And I think it's a great one to provide sort of a visual idea of what the telomere might do. Now, um, Mr. Lovett, who made these pictures um, for me, I said to him, oh, well, just go to the store and get shoelaces, you know, get ones for kids that have maybe the alphabet on them. And he called me up and he said, kids don't wear shoelaces anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So he had to write the genetic information on these shoelaces. Um, My lab uh, actually got a group together to participate in one of the Susan G. Komen races for the cure, and um, the team Zakian was known as the Mighty Aglets. I wish you could see the back of their shirts, which it says the Mighty Aglets on it, but they only took pictures of the front of them. Okay, so to get back to the um, N replication problem, it turns out there are two end replication problems. The first one is solved by telomerase, and it's the fact that you do not completely replicate the five prime end of the chromosome. But if you remember, I told you that the G strand is essential for telomere function. And so, so this is problem number one. So the leading strand, which goes right to the end of the chromosome, also has a problem this is replication problem number two, and that it lacks a G-tail. And if it doesn't have a G-tail, it cannot be a functioning telomere. So how is this solved? Telomeres are ingenious, they do all kinds of things. So um, this was discovered by um, Mundy Wellinger when he was a postdoc in my lab. It's a totally unanticipated step in telomere metabolism. We discovered it in yeast, but it also occurs in humans, so it's probably universal. And that is after you replicate the end of the chromosome by conventional replication, but before telomerase, you actually degrade the five prime end at both ends of the chromosome. So you make, instead of having a little gap of eight to 12 bases, you actually make a big gap of 50 to 100 bases. And that can serve as a substrate for telomerase on now both ends of the chromosome or just for conventional replication, which when you remove the terminal RNA primer, you're gonna have a short g-tail at both ends. So a rather ingenious um, solution to solving this second end replication problem. Okay, so I've told you, um, th- this is a slide that just lists some of the critical functions of telomeres. They distinguish chromosomes from double-stranded breaks. They protect the end against degradation, and normally from endo from, um, end infusions, and they serve as a substrate for a special replication mechanism, telomerase, which allows for the complete replication of the chromosome end. The last thing that I, the, the last function I want to tell you about is something called telomere position effect, or telomeric silencing. It turns out that telomeres are a special site for gene expression in the cell. And this was um, discovered in yeast by Dan Gotchling when he was a postdoc in my lab, a really serendipitous discovery. He was putting a gene next to a telomere, not because he thought he was gonna see special um, expression of that gene, but just because he wanted to have a marker at the end of the chromosome. And it turns out that the gene that I'm showing you here, the ad 2 gene, when this gene is not expressed, you get red colonies. When the gene is expressed, you get white colonies. So what we've done here is plate cells, and those, you plate a single cell, and after about 25 divisions, you have a million cells, and now you can see them, they're a colony. So these are colonies of about a million cells. And although it's probably a little hard to see with the lights at their current level, some of these cells are red and some of them are white, but they're all genetically identical. These cells are identical at the DNA level. So what's happening is that the ad 2 gene in some cells is repressed, and therefore you get a red colony, and in some it's expressed and it's a white colony. But you can actually switch back and forth, and it's probably easiest to see that. There's red sectors in this largely white colony. That's cases where the gene was being expressed and the progeny of a subset of a small number of the cells now turned it off. So you, it's a metastable form of um, gene silencing. And it turns out, Dan went on to show that the longer the telomere, the more silencing you have. Now, it took about 10 years, but uh, people working on human telomeres were finally able to show that this same kind of silencing happens in humans. And like yeast, the longer the telomere, the more silencing there is. So this raises the possibility of another way in which telomeres may be affecting the aging process. Because our telomeres are long when we're young there should be high silencing, but they get shorter and shorter as we get older. So if you have genes right next to the telomere that have, for example, maybe um, they have a negative role in the cell and you turn them on as you get older. This is a model for which um, there's some evidence, but uh, not compelling evidence. So I wanna add by, end by, um, actually, so should, should I do one more thing or not? Okay, so I'm going to show you one piece of unpublished data because everything else is published here and I couldn't leave, leaving you thinking that we don't actually do anything new in my lab. So telomerase, right now the major focus in my lab on telomerase is understanding how it's regulated. And I've pointed out to you that even small changes in the level of telomerase can have really deleterious consequences for the cell. not surprisingly, telomerase is regulated on multiple levels. And I wanna tell you about one such level. This is um, by a gene called the PIF1 gene. It was discovered by Vin Schultz when he was a postdoc in my lab many years ago. We published the first paper in 1994 as a gene that when you got rid of it, your telomeres got longer. So we're separating DNA on a gel where big DNA is on top and small DNA is on the bottom. And we're visualizing telomeres with the radioactive probe. This is the position of telomeres. And you can see that in the wild type cell, telomeres are a certain length. It happens to be about 300 base pairs. But in the mutant, they're longer. And it turns out, in order for telomeres to lengthen in the absence of PIF-1, you must have telomerase. So the suggestion here is that PIF-1 is somehow inhibiting telomerase, because when it's absent, the telomeres get longer. I should also add, if you overexpress PIF1, the telomeres get shorter. So its telomere length is inversely proportional to the amount of PIF1 in the cell. So here's an in vitro experiment. The experiment I was just telling you about was done in living cells. Now Jean-Baptiste Boulet, a former postdoc, I am gonna get to an unpublished result, this is all published, wanted to see if he could affect telomerase activity in vitro. So how do you do a telomerase assay? You start with a substrate, telomeric DNA, you add, Partially purified telomerase, very hard to get. You add radioactivity so you can see if telomerase makes your substrate longer. And then this is what you see if it adds, uh, you can't see your initial substrate because it's unlabeled, but if you add one nucleotide to it, it will go to that position. And yeast telomerase, I'm sorry to say, is a rather wimpy enzyme. It adds a maximum of seven in test tubes in vitro. It adds more than that inside cells. Okay, so now the question is, will this reaction change if we add PIF-1? So we have to purify PIF-1, we actually do that in bacteria. And then we can do the same reaction with and without PIF-1. And this is just to orient you on the gel, this is the position of plus seven, that's the position of plus one. So this first lane is what you see when you don't have PIF-1. And you can um, quantitate the abundance of the different reaction products. And what you see is that most of the products have either five or seven nucleotides added to your DNA primer in the absence of PIF. Now you add PIF-1 and you quantitate it, and you see that rather than adding five or seven nucleotides, you add only one or two. So PIF-1 is reducing the number of bases added by telomerase, and we can recapitulate that in vitro. I won't show you the data for it, but Jean-Baptiste went on to show that it does it by actually removing telomerase from DNA, and here's a cartoon. Just showing how it might how we think it 's uh, working now, we know that in both yeast and humans that telomerase acts preferentially on short telomeres. Now this is a smart thing for the cell to do because i 've told you telomerase is not very abundant, and so you want to target it to the telomeres that need it the most, those that are you know gasping, I need telomeric DNA, please lengthen me okay. Um, And we showed several years ago that yeast telomerase itself binds preferentially to yeast telomere, so that's good. So one of the questions is, how do you get telomerase to be only at short telomeres? And now we're gonna get to the unpublished data. So what Katrin Peschke, a current postdoc, has just done, I think these data are literally from the last week, is to isolate the telomeres that are associated with PIF-1 and see if they're the same length as the rest of the telomeres in the cell. And so here's her data. This is the average length of telomeres in the cell, and this is the length of the telomeres that are bound by PIF-1. They're longer. So PIF-1 is preferentially binding to long telomeres. If it's binding to long telomeres and evicting telomerase from it, it explains why telomerase, why we see telomerase bound preferentially to short telomeres. I'm simplifying it, it's not the whole answer. This is a complicated, there are other things that contribute to it, but this is one of the things. Now, as a control, we looked at another protein, this happens to be a protein called Ku, and you can see that the, the uh, bulk telomeres in the cell versus the telomeres that are ku associated are the same length. So, PIF-1 is binding preferentially to long telomeres, and we know that when PIF-1 is at a telomere, it evicts telomerase off the DNA. And so this is helping the telomerase to act at those telomeres that need it the most. So I wanna thank you all for your attention. I wanna thank the members of my lab. This is, um, I put this together for uh, something and I'm so enamored with this picture that I had to show it. These people are not all in my lab right now. There's about 10 people in my lab right now. But these are, everybody who's been in my lab, except rotation students, I have to say, they're not on the picture. Um, since 2006 are on this picture. And so thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to answer any questions.
0: Questions? So maybe um, uh, given that people are starting to be shy, I'm going to start with the first question, which is, what is the evolutionary explanation for the, the breakdown of the genome in Oxytrica and Tetrahymena? Why would an organism take perfectly good chromosomes and then just blast them into a million pieces?
1: Uh, of course the answer Other to- than to make telomeres. Right, I mean, yes, I, I think they do it, how it how to make the field um, and to make beautiful cells. So <laughs> ciliates are really big cells. And so they need a lot of gene products. And it turns out that that macronucleus is not just chopped up into little pieces but each of the pieces is amplified so there are many more copies there in the, in the macronucleus and the probably the micronucleus would not have enough copies of the genes to supply such a big cell the micronucleus it turns out has only one func- function and that's in the reproduction the gene- the um sexual reproduction of the cells so it participates in what's called meiosis, which is the process that produces germ cells. But otherwise, it doesn't do anything else. All the real action is in the macronucleus. Actually, Laura, Laura Landweber in um, EEB works on uh, Oxytricha and its related ones, and I'm sure she'd also be happy to talk with you, because it turns out its process of genome rearrangement is totally uh, baroque. It really is quite remarkable. Yes. There is a condition
0: called progeria uh-huh. where people age very quickly. Mm-hmm. At age 15, they look like they're 60. Is there a problem with uh-huh. that? Good
1: question. So progeria actually refers to um, a group of diseases that cause early onset aging. And some of those diseases are due to telomere failure. So one of the um, best studied of them is a disease called Werner syndrome. It's seen mostly in people of Japanese descent, and luckily, <clears throat> Excuse me. It's really rare. Um, and in Werner's syndrome, the, um, and one of these activities that's involved, not in telomerase, but in another aspect of copying the telomere, is deficient. And what happens is those people are fine up till about 15. So there's a classic picture of this young woman at 15. She's beautiful, vibrant. And then you see her three years later, and she just looks like... Um, 85 years old, not that 85 years old, people are not vibrant and beautiful, but in this particular case, it's a striking contrast. So other progerias are due to other things. For example, one kind of progeria is due to mutation in a protein that lines the nucleus up, proteins called nuclear lamins. It could be that these are actually have a telomere connection, but it hasn't been demonstrated yet. So yes and no to your, your question. Yes? Well, that's a really good question. And that is the next, uh, one of the nice things about science, you know, you get an answer and it just says, well, what comes um, next? Uh, we did have figured out through work from multiple people in the lab, what's the signal at the short telomere that gets telomerase to go, um, that helps telomerase be there preferentially. And it's certain, it's actually the absence of a protein. Called RIF2 that um, helps make the signal that this is a telomere that needs telomerase. And now we're interested in looking to see what the proteins might be that say to PIF1, this is a long telomere, come here. Yes, Angela. So a lot is known about that, especially in yeast, not so much in humans, but it turns out that the major duplex telomere binding protein is a protein called RAP1. And RAP1 stands for repressor activator protein. And it's actually a silencer protein at the other low side that are silenced in the yeast genome, which aren't many, unlike human genomes, for example. And it recruits proteins called the sir proteins, which are silencer proteins but it's a metastable recruitment. So you get characteristics of silent chromatin next to the telomere when the proteins have been recruited there, and then it flips and goes into an active state. It's not a very stable transcriptional repression, but many aspects of the repression there, other than the lability of it, are very similar to repression at other sites in the genome. So in yeast, in yeast, that's been studied a lot, and it's genes that get activated in times of stress. In um, trypanosomes, which is the organism that causes sleeping sickness, that's one of the ones where um, the most dramatic utilization of telomeric silencing is seen. The way try- trypanosomes escape the immune system, which is one of the reasons it's such a difficult disease to cure people of, is because they have um, proteins on the surface of cells they're called the surface antigen and they switch and they switch because those genes are out by the telomeres and they're all repressed except one so one is, and then you change the one that represses so that's a case where it's really clear that it's exploited for a very important aspect of the lifespan it's probably true in um, uh, the, the organism that causes malaria as well Yes. Has there been any work to upregulate telomeres in the patients that you described about the genetic diseases? So um that's a interesting question, and um there's work done in mice uh because so far these experiments aren't uh clear enough to be applying them to humans. And you can um mobilize for example, stem cells in a mouse by overexpressing telomerase. And the way this has been done is in skin cells in the hair follicle, and you'll get a, a patch of You can do it in a very local way, so there's just one small area of the mouse. And it'll get really hairy. Another uh, potential use of, this, of telomerase technology is as a cure for male pattern baldness, something for which there's a lot of interest as well. So, um, those experiments, uh, the problem is about turning on telomerase in human cells is that is going to make that person really susceptible to cancer. Some people say, you know, why is telomerase present in such low amounts in human cells? And the most compelling answer to that question, although it's not a definitive answer, but the most compelling answer is that it's an anti-tumor strategy because... If a cell runs out of telomeric DNA and that cell dies, you can destroy that cell and the organism will be fine. But if that cell activates telomerase and becomes a tumor cell, then it's it's more of a problem. So um, the idea is is that if you uh, add telomerase to most of our cells, that we would have a higher rate of cancer. Now, if you take human cells in culture and activate telomerase in them, They will live forever. Normally, uh, tumor—sorry, human cells in culture, normal human cells, go through about 55 cell divisions, and then they senesce, they stop dividing. The only thing you need to do to make human cells grow forever is to add back telomerase. So there are some experiments that would suggest that what you're suggesting could be a good thing if you could control it, maybe just put it in stem cells, for example.
2: Right. Russell, obviously, that
1: you can know, reverse it with meditation and so forth, but that's true or not. But then you, you said a moment ago that, in fact, some of the genes that happen to be near the end of the chromosomes or at least in other organisms, are
2: stress-related. So it seems to lead to a paradoxical situation that uh, st- stress-inducing changes at the end of the chromosome that seem to cause premature aging might, in fact, be evolutionarily selected.
1: Yeah, so first of all, we don't want to... Um, Yeast never have to care for a chronically ill child or have other stresses that humans might be subject to. So we have to be careful about extrapolating. But actually, one could extrapolate if one were so inclined and make a scenario that would fit with the dogma that's out there that as you are subjected to stress, your telomeres shorten. So in yeast, if your telomeres shorten in response to stress, And I don't think there's any really good evidence that that's true in yeast, like a heat shock stress or something. But if they did, and then that would make the expression of the gene next to the telomere more likely to occur. And since those are genes that are activated when stress occur, linking that to telomere length would actually be a reasonable control mechanism. So uh, I have to say I'm highly skeptical of the data linking human stress to telomere length but um, there's an increasing number of studies. Basically, anything that ails you can be explained by your telomeres being too short. (laughs) (laughs) If you read the popular literature. Yes? Are you aware of any of the uh, findings that women have longer telomeres? Than men, yes, yes. uh, So women on average have longer telomeres than men and that's almost surely the fact that our germ cells, the number of cell divisions to go to make an egg are fewer than the number to make a sperm. And what determines the inheritance of telomere length are not the divisions in the skin cells or you know your hair cells, it's in the germline. And so female uh, the the progeny that give rise cells that give rise to eggs go through fewer divisions, and as a result, females on average have somewhat longer telomeres. The difference in that there's a lot of scatter in those data. There's a lot of scatter in all the human telomere length. It's a very variable phenotype. Yes? Is that vaccine going to have a systemic effect over the or, or is it localized to those tumors? So great question, because anti-telomerase vaccines should kill off your stem cells. Now, one of the reasons people say, well, antitelomerase is a good idea is because cancer occurs most often in people after reproductive ages. So the um, cells that give rise to sperm and egg really need telomerase. But the cells that give rise to your hematopoietic stem cell system also need telomerase. It turns out that the vaccine, so the stem cells Paradoxically, stem cells don't divide very rapidly. And in the studies that have been done, perhaps because of the difference in the growth rate of tumor cells versus stem cells, the stem cells don't appear to be affected by the anti-telomerase vaccine, whereas the tumor cells do. And this has been, um, these kind of studies have not been done on a huge diff- number of different kinds of tumors. They've been done on breast tumors and then in England on colon cancer. But, um, so one wouldn't want to generalize too much from this. And they're also fairly small scale studies. But what has been done so far would suggest that some way the stem cells are protected. Yeah, So, since so many, one of the huge successes in, in cancer treatment has been with childhood cancers. And um, the childhood cancers don't seem to have the same telomerase involvement as adult cancers. Um, and so both because of that, and because there are very efficacious treatments for many such tumors, uh, there's not much interest in using anti-telomerase strategies, but good point, good connection. I can tell you people, um, have been paying attention by your questions, that's good. Um, Now I'd like someone, uh, I'll do what I do when I teach. Somebody please draw the end replication problem (laughs) on the board.